person fighting for their life and then I didn't know that people died of an eating disorder until we got to IDP yeah which for people listening is intensive day program it's a partial hospitalization right and when I say I didn't know that people died of this I was sitting in the lobby and there was a little booklet and I'm flipping through it and it's like I'll always you know be with you I'll always remember you and then I look up and Kel walks by and I go Kel are these girls dead and she looked me in the eyes and nodded mm-hmm. and that's when yeah. I realized this person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with is fighting for her life. Right. That's how long it took me to get it. Yeah. So I wonder in the 90s if anyone got it. Well, I know that through our talking, I had a vague memory come up. There used to be this workbook called The Courage to Heal about sexual, sexual abuse and sexual assault and surviving that. Uh-huh. I will tell you they did not do a very good job. <laughs> What, okay, well, what time period are we talking about? I'm not ripping this, this author, by the way. No, We're just talking about the evolution. Absolutely. No, I'm not. I'm not, not, I'm not I don't, let me clarify. I don't mean the book was bad. Okay. I mean, the approach that was used with the book wasn't so well. Like, I don't think people were that knowledgeable yet. Of course. Yes. So, it's not to their, like, they were doing it on purpose. It was just, yeah. you don't know what you don't know. So, that would trigger a lot of the flashbacks. For Kelly, I feel like. Okay, so well, I don't have any context for this. Courage to Heal, start me up from the beginning. It's just a workbook that you go through, and it's um, there's a book with it. I don't remember ever seeing the book, but I remember now a flash of the cover came into my mind, and then I've, I've seen it over my years of working. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been, like, older something, you know, somebody left somewhere or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but it's a workbook where people go through, and they, they answer questions um, about, various aspects of things or about sexual assault. Is it like a serious version of This Is Your Life, Guy Smiley? I don't know that one. That's Sesame Street. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that one. You know, This Is Your Life, Guy Smiley, and it yeah. goes back through their mm-hmm. life. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it's a historical yeah. retelling. Basically, oh, yes. fun times. Uh-huh. Jesus, I can't imagine yeah. her getting through that so, in one piece. No wonder she never wanted to eat. Because now I'm sober, and now the only thing I can control is not eating. People say control a lot when they talk about their eating disorders. Yeah. I don't, I'm sympathetic to it. I'm trying to understand it, but I don't relate to it. I've right. lost appetite before. I was, I was thin when she died. Yeah. Uh, but even through that hell over time, I started to eat again. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just like your average kind of slovenly American whose workout routine is mostly YouTube. 
Right. I, but I mean, that doesn't mean I'm happier. No. You know, it's just that it doesn't go that direction for me. Yeah. So I'm trying so hard to understand when people say I felt well, control when I restricted my eating. So What does that mean? Addiction in general, um, you know, there's, 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 there's been proof provided that, you know, your, the, the structure of your brain actually changes. Like it's sort of wired differently now. Like neurons fire a different path than they did before. Once you cross sort of that threshold and become addicted, right? Okay. Eating disorder is an addiction. You know, all kinds of things can be an addiction. So in eating, the, you know, it depends on what, ger- what way you want to look at it, if you want to look at it as a medical issue or not, right? Because there's always, excuse me, there's always that debate of medical, not medical, whatever. Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when you become addicted to something, you transition from, you know, general everyday like, oh, I can, you know, like um, things I actually can control, Right. Like, if the speed limit says 55, I can go that or I can go 60, right? Like, I get to choose that, right? Like, I can control that behavior, right? Whereas when you now cross over to being an, ad- an addict or having an addiction in some form, you focus and you fixate and you obsess on controlling the very thing you can't, right? And then you feel powerless because you can't actually control it. So then you grasp at straws to find ways to control and it gets distorted. It's like a lens you look through. It's like glasses you put on, and now you see the world through this way, and it's not necessarily reality. It's not accurate. Right. But your reality is what you make it. So the lens you're looking through, you feel is real. It's as real to you. Mm-hmm. Kel said that, uh, she said, I was on such crazy shit when I was a teenager that when I got sober, that felt trippy to me. Uh-huh. Being on drugs was my normal, and right. then sobriety was like, what is this? Right. Like, I can't, I'm, uh-huh. I'm trying so hard to understand that normal, obviously, mainly when she said that, it terrified me. I was like, what the fuck did you do to yourself? <laughs> right. Horrified me. Right. It's different being a wife than just being a friend. For sure. Um, but she wasn't anywhere near any of that stuff when, <laughs> when right. we were together. I'm laughing about <laughs> me having to be the one running this major, like, dope ring to try to get her weed while she was literally dying yeah, right uh she had tumors in her bo- uh, her spine yeah she had tumors in her bones uh there's no pain like mm-hmm. it um and all my little you know whatever went out the window i was yeah. like i don't know how i'm gonna do it but kel i'm gonna find you the marijuana right. and she made this face she couldn't laugh at me like you are right now right. she made this face <laughs> she just held it in <laughs> and i was like no i'm gonna find it come back to her two days later kel I'm the only one who didn't have any. And she's like, yeah, I didn't want to say. (laughs) I didn't want to tell you you were so serious. I said, Kel, I've been practicing. If I get pulled over, no matter what, speeding, whatever, I'm just going to say, I don't have any drugs. And I think that sounds convincing to me. And she's she's shaking her head. She's like, oh, this is horrible. No. I said, I'm going to start speaking in code with people. I'd text a friend, the worms are in the garden. And they'd be like, I don't know what that means, but I'm coming over with some weed. I'd be like, the worms are in the garden. I'll tell you what, we had some fucking laughs. I am sure you did. <laughs> Can you picture her married to me? <laughs> I'm sure it was amazing, I have no doubt. <laughs> we, we had some laughs. I have no doubt. Okay, so the control piece. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> is it, so it's a, it's, a, it's a piece of feeling completely out of control, which mm-hmm. I, can, I can definitely see that coming from trauma. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about human anatomy for a second. So the human stomach, I've been learning houses a lot of the hormones that 
give us a sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. I always think psychology neck up, right? I think of it as yeah. taking place in the brain, but there's neurotransmitters the all mm-hmm. over the body. Mm-hmm. There's neurotransmitters in the heart. There's neurotran- Are there in the stomach neurotransmitters? Um, that I don't know, but we have our vagus nerve that's connected from our stomach to our, our head, which is linked to depression and all kinds of different stuff. Well, that just answered about 8,000 questions for me. Yeah. Why people eat, restrict eating, and so much of your mood is to do with food. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got the job, let's celebrate, let's go have a steak. Yeah. Just like, and it can be casual and sweet like that. Right. Or it can be like, you know, the well, other and darker also, side. Right, culture, community, and different cultures dictate food is a place where you share. Food is a place where you show you care. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you have that on top of it, and then that gets confusing for somebody who has disordered eating. I made her mashed potatoes <clears throat> one time, and I, I'm good with mashed potatoes. I do, I do okay in the kitchen. I have my moments. Eh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was like, Kel, we're having comfort food tonight. Check this out. And I had the spuds going. I had, like, half a stick of butter, like, right. the whole thing. And yeah. she go, looks at me and goes what the fuck is comfort food? Yeah. Like she would never put those two words together. Right. And I just, my heart kind of sank and I was yeah. like, it's food that makes you feel good. And she just, I might as well have been speaking Greek. Right. My heart just breaks. Like she has a journal entry that says, what is the next reality? Where will we step our feet? Where will we lay our heads? I hope we don't have to eat. Like if that's her impression of heaven, just mm-hmm. one day I won't have to eat anymore. Right. That's what that we still toast that way. When I have a meal with my family, we all raise a glass and we say no more food, and that's how we honor her. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, it's heart wrenching for me to think that like a s'more, a you burger, know. any like anything. Did she ever? I love s'mores. Did how she, could you do that? Like just I, a ridiculous like funny food from your childhood or anything. Like could she ever enjoy it? I don't know. Like ever. Right. I don't know. When we were in, uh, we went to Vegas when we first got together, I already had it booked and I didn't want to spend any time away from her. So I was like, well, now that we're together, you're going to Las Vegas because it's already booked. And she's like, okay. <laughs> and so she booked a flight and came with. And uh, we went with my younger sister also. And the three of us were like the three musketeers. Yeah. Our whole three years together, we were the three musketeers. And I'm a lightweight. I go to sleep early. Yeah. Cal's the opposite, right? Musician right. and the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, well... That was an exciting day, but it's after nine and I'm out. And <laughs> she's just rolling her eyes and she and my sister, she goes, drinks are too expensive around here. I'm going to make a quick run to the store. I'll come back and then you and I will hang out, saying to my sister. Yeah. Right? And the way the story goes, I didn't know this till after I, she passed because the stories come out more and more. And I just, right. some night that I went to sleep early and didn't know what happened and right. whatever. I guess it turns out she came back with vodka and pixie sticks. <laughs> She goes, I got us all set for the night. Slams them on the counter in the hotel room, vodka, and just sugar in a tube. Oh, my. I like to think that she maybe had some enjoyment. I know that there's people, nutritionists must be like, okay, that's not a meal. But, you know, semantics. Right. (laughs) I mean, we all need to look at each individual person and what they're capable of and what they need. So So speaking of capable of. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Vodka and pixie sticks. Um, (laughs) So that's what the disorder looked like for her. I just don't know if in her lifetime she enjoyed a bite of food. Yeah. And now you talked about that vagus nerve. Yeah. So we were going to get into this link between the stomach and our moods and everything Mm -hmm. and how we choose to cope. And that goes back up into the head and the neurotransmitters and those pathways, right? Right. Um, Like when I'm upset, I reach for her. 
mm-hmm. I can't reach. Mm-hmm. So I'm reaching for whatever, this mic or, or whatever I can do to try to feel like I'm speaking for her. Yeah. And I think I try to imagine over time the roads are rebuilding in my brain, mm-hmm. but they always lead to her some way or another. Yeah. It's just how I'm wired. Well, so do like, you recognize that you've experienced trauma? People say it to me. I don't want to go around. Uh, I have such an easy time feeling sorry for myself with what I've been through. Yeah. And there's not a lot of people who would have the guts to push back on me. Being widowed at 35. Yeah. Uh, who would say, See, feeling sorry for yourself won't get this podcast done. It won't get this foundation known. It won't get her name known around the world. Um, a lot of people have it bad. What are you going to get up and do? To-? No one will ever say that to me. Because I could easily just say, have you seen cancer? Mm-hmm. You know, I know the fucking millimeters of every tumor in her body. Right. I could, I could shut up anyone in a second. And that doesn't help me. Yeah. That keeps people from calling me out on my laziness. You know, I feel like this podcast could be up by now. It could be up by January. Yeah. But I'm like, but uh, when, but, but, you know, I'm just the, really like not that productive compared to my hopes and dreams for her. But now you have an understanding of what it's like to experience trauma. I want to understand it for it other people, but I want to be lazy. hard on myself. It isn't about being lazy. That's what everybody does, right? <laughs> it's okay if it's you, but it's not okay if it's me. <laughs> well, but why can't we be compassionate towards others and then tough on ourselves? I said that to Kel. I said, yeah. I, said uh, I was mad, not mad at her, <coughs> in the situation. We were in the hospital one day. We were in the hospital a lot of days, the hospital for cancer, not for the eating. And uh, I don't remember how it came up, but I looked at her and... Uh, I said, I don't know if you could be in my shoes right now. I don't know what I was upset about. Yeah. She maybe wanted me to calm down or take a nap or, or go for a walk or give her some space. And I was, like, obsessing over, they said you have to walk this corridor four times a day. You didn't walk it four times a day for the last week. And I was, like, pushing and pushing and pushing her. And she might have been like, baby, you got to calm down. There's yeah. only so much of this we can control. Right. Well, you're not going to say that to newlyweds with stage four cancer. I was losing my mind. Right. Um, and I think I looked her in the eye and said, you know, I don't know if you could be in my shoes right now. I said, mm-hmm. you're tough for yourself. But you're not tough to watch other people suffer. Mm-hmm. And she made a face like, did you just say I'm not tough? Right. And I looked at her and said, no, you're tough for yourself. You're mm-hmm. tough for your own pain. Yeah. The toughest person I've ever known in my life. Right. But you can't watch other people suffer. I don't know what you'd be like in my shoes right now. This isn't easy, Cal. For sure. And um, Where does tough change for you to strength? Being hard on oneself. Yeah. Being hard on oneself, right? That's what we all do. Like, we end up turning to... Some people do. I know tons of people who have no accountability whatsoever. And everything in their life is someone else's fault until the day they die. And you sit there. You know people like this. And you wonder, will this one ever grow up? Mm -hmm. And I just want to be the grown-up in the room. Because Kel was the grown-up in the room. She could accept everyone for Mm -hmm. who they were and for what they were capable of. She Mm -hmm. had a sense of context about people that most don't. Most people are like, this is the conduct that makes a person good and anything below that I'm going to kind of be judgmental and anything above that I'll kind of admire sure. and she was like this is what this person is capable of yeah. and I love them no matter what and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of people out there with that level of wisdom and compassion so the you know I don't know the work that I do with people a lot of time and I'm, I'm sort of you know like if, if we talk about always just treating their symptoms and not actually getting to what is going on for that person or helping them heal or repairing or you know in various forms right mm-hmm. The thing it always seems to go back to in my experience is shame and lack of self-trust. Like confidence or ability to feel like the decisions I make make sense. Okay? And shame says, 
I'm, I'm a bad person. There's something morally wrong with me. I, why can't I figure this out? Why can't I stop being lazy? Why can't I get this? Why can't I, you know, whatever, right? But the antidote to those things, in my opinion, has been, um, you know, through the work of <clears throat> this woman. <clears throat> I don't know if you know her or not, but I admire her dearly. Her name is Brene Brown. You heard of her? It depends. What book did she write? Um, uh, Daring to Lead, Braving the Wilderness, um, Shame and Vulnerability. I can't remember the name of it. Um, I don't think I know her. She has some TED Talks. That's how I end up coming across her. Oh, okay. She's a researcher. And all she does, all she did, now she disseminates her information. But she was a social worker like me, and she's a researcher. And she researched shame. So she, uh, she interviewed people over the course of, I think it was about 20 years, and all she did was interview people about shame. Okay? Wow. Right? That's interesting. Right. Some people have very little. <coughs> right. That's it's no true. shame. <laughs> no, it's true. There right. are people who just never really feel bad about what they've done. True. Then we cross into a different line of interesting topics, such as, you know, people who lack the ability to have feelings or empathy or that sort of stuff. But her antidote that she has found is in vulnerability and courage and strength, right? So it's, we have this, our, our, our society has this interesting way of like, no pain, no gain, right? So wait, you just said, I don't want to miss that. The antidote to shame is vulnerability? Encourage. Encourage? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really powerful. Yeah. And we live in a society that teaches us no pain, no gain, right? Yeah. If I'm not hard on myself, if I don't keep beating myself up on the inside, I'm never going to change. Bullshit. I'll never achieve. Right. Never going to do anything. You don't buy into that? No, I don't buy into that. I have seen it go against people time and time and time and time and time again. I see how it perpetuates the cycle. I see how it doesn't allow a person to grow. I see all kinds of stuff with that. Yeah. There is a, there is this there's this other side of it, right? Well, where does the piece where does the accountability puzzle piece fit in here? Cuz when I say like I haven't gotten done nearly the things I want to in the foundation in these last few years, um just trying to hold myself accountable to what I think she deserves and knowing that her voice yeah. already is changing lives. For sure. Like, you know, why so, isn't it all over the world yet? And I get, okay, so you and I are similar in that way of like, um, <clears throat> the other piece of this is that we always feel like whatever we've done, it's not enough. Okay? But the whole thing about shame and then that courage and that vulnerability is getting to a point where you can say, I am enough. I'm doing the best I can with what I have in this moment so that I don't end up shaming myself, which perpetuates the cycle of me never changing, let's say, not getting things done, or you had mentioned lazy, or, you know, my high expectation of where I think I should be versus, like, where it goes where it needs to go, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of in that dynamic of accountability isn't an external thing. Account accountability is an internal dynamic, right? Holding myself accountable doesn't need to be a negative thing. It can be a loving place, right? Like, you know, okay, let's say, you know, your goal of I wanted this done three years ago, right? Well, if you take a look at that and you say, well, I didn't get it done. What's the point of having any sort of like self-loathing or self-hatred or disgust or disdain about the behavior? What, what does that get you? What do you gain from that? 
nothing, in my opinion, right? But if you were to say to yourself, you know what? You're right. That isn't what you wanted. But if you continue to be on yourself about it in a negative way, you're really not going to be able to do anything different. So that's where the acceptance comes in. So I kind of transfer from accountability to this version of acceptance, where if I can accept that I didn't meet my expectation, I can go somewhere from there. I can find a new path. I can make a different change. I can make a choice. I don't have to get stuck and perpetuated by my shame. I guess I can see where, if it's tied to productivity, being accountable and, and accepting, okay, I haven't achieved this yet, or this you know, event didn't have 300 people at it, but the people who did come said it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about it differently than I do. I, no- I noticed after our last event when I'd hang out with someone who was there and hear them explain it to someone else, yeah. boy, did they use different words than I did. Right? Like, they'd say, she threw this amazing event, it was huge, and I was like, I'm just sitting there thinking, my goal for ticket sales right. and what actually happened, and that's all I can see. And right. everyone else is like, this is incredible. Right. And it's... I. And then you miss, How do like, you see yourself through someone else's eyes? I don't you know. You can't. That's the thing is you can't, right? You have to honor that that's, their, that's, that's theirs, right? And, I, and at the same time, I have, like, in that, I have to honor the fact that that's not what you had hoped, right, for the turnout, let's say. But at the same time, if you're just focused on, like, that it didn't happen the way that you had hoped, then you miss out on the experience. Right. You know? It's like... All that, it's sort of that negativity takes you away, you know, and that's the thing that shame does is that um, in one of her books, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's one of her earlier books, um, something about daring, the daring way. No, that's the training program. I can't remember. I apologize. She is interviewing a person and sharing about... um, this person is sharing the story their whole life that they've always been that person that's kind of like hoped for the best but always expected the worst yeah. and lived their life that way. Sort of did like, the, like the, the backup plans on backup plans for like if this should go wrong or if this should go wrong or if this were to happen, then I have these solutions, right? Like that type of person, but always hopeful that it would actually go better, right? So this person was sharing the story about this and... One day, the, this person was traveling. It, it was a male and with their wife. They got in a car accident, and the wife passed, died in the car accident. And reflecting on that, he had said, my shame, sort of that being hard on myself of trying to get everything right, took me away from the time that I actually got to spend with my wife, and now she's gone. Because all I did was worry about all the things that could go wrong, and I never really, truly never really enjoyed, enjoyed the moment. The time while I was with. I'll say one thing. We did enjoy each other. We For did sure. enjoy the moment. There were some ridiculous times when I can say that we were like belly laughing, like right in the middle of the chemo clinic. Right. Like this isn't the place to laugh this hard, but it's something funny just happened. We were so used to living on the edge of death. I mean, everyone is technically, yeah. you know, if you put your hand over your throat, there's not much protection there. Right. Um, everyone was living right up against the edge of it, but she was in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the time between when you guys were hanging out, uh, and her passing, like, there weren't a lot of long time periods where she wasn't hospitalized. Right. Um, and she was, she would say something to me once we were together, and it was always scaring me because she would be like, I eat every day now. I can't believe this. I eat every day. And I'd, I was, I remember saying to her, Cal, what this, 
fuck does that mean? Right. Like, what does that mean? How can you say that? <clears throat> That's yeah. a horrible bar. Yeah. And I like, and I'd think to myself, how like how bad was it? And she said to me like, it was bad. You don't know how. I don't mm. want to throw out numbers because right. someone else might be that number right now, and I don't want them to feel exactly. like, oh, you're a fucking loser right. at rock bottom. But that's right. She was like, I've been, I've. It's been way worse. Mm-hmm. I've. It's been way, way worse. And um, then also people who like if they struggle with eating disordered stuff, behaviors, whatever, addiction issues, hearing that they'll want to know. Right? Like, what was the number? Or they'll what try and figure it, it out. Yeah. Or, well, you know. <clears throat> someone else's free show. This I want to make mine, life. I want to make mine harder. You know, I want to make, you know, they, we tell them war, we call them war stories. They want to have the worst one. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I don't think anyone's ever going to, yeah, I don't want to <laughs> put something out there for someone to top. The worst war story I ever heard was someone who woke up with a toe tag on, who's a drug addict. Yeah. Now, if you wake up in the morgue, that's like, you used up one of your that, nine lives, cat. I can't even... Wow, Woke I up with a toe tag. If that doesn't make it real for you, you're fucking killing yourself. They no thought you were dead. Right. Wow, that's insane. I'm like, yeah, I'll probably cut that out because I don't want someone else to aim for that. These aren't goals. Yeah, this, <laughs> you can just preface it with that. These aren't goals. These are not life goals. No, we're talking, this is, you know, um, we're, we're having conversation here, but that does not mean that we're trying to minimize it in any way. No, this, I mean, I live with this every day. Yeah. So I, if I make light of something, <clears throat> it's gallows humor. Right. That's how I'm dealing with exactly. it at the moment. <clears throat> and that shit is real. Yeah, if you've right. helped someone all the way to the end, there's some weird jokes that happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you can't have a sense of humor about stuff like that when you're in that place, yeah. I don't even, I don't even know how you would handle. I mean, I don't even know. Just break down. Yeah. You know. Right. But then, who goes and walks the person to the bathroom if you're mm-hmm. breaking down and bawling in the corner? Exactly. So you have to lose your mind to keep it. That's right. Um, I'm not saying I was some outstanding caretaker. I did okay. I was a horrible nurse. I don't like blood. I actually don't. <laughs> Me neither. I don't Can't like do blood. It. I don't like any of this right. stuff for the hours I've spent in the hospital. Right. I don't like any. If it's her body, it's not gross. So going back to, I'm interested for people who care about someone who's dealing with PTSD, really something severe, and they could uh, be in a flashback at any given moment. Mm-hmm. I remember looking in her eyes or looking at her eyes, and she's, you can see this person reaching for reality. And yeah. I'm using my voice, Kel, 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 it's me, can you hear me, can you hear me, do you know who I am? As a friend, when you were in those situations, what did you do and what do you suggest for people who who help people through flashbacks regularly? Mm-hmm. Um, no judgment, for one. You know, don't put any sort of judgment on it, like if that was a rough one or if that was a, you know, that seems like you came back from that one quicker, you know, that sort of stuff. I feel oh. like to each, you know, that, you know, and sitting with them, not even, you know, necessarily even trying to pull them out of it. There's, I mean, that's, this is just my experience and my understanding and what I, you know, this is just my opinion. There's a million of me or more. So I feel like what would help the best or like feel the most safe, because I've never experienced one, so I have no idea, right? Okay. But what I know from seeing that happen is that feeling safe after that happens is big. You know, being surrounded by, you know, not in a strange location, let's say, or, you know, just kind of knowing that you're okay, right? And so having a person just sit with you and maybe even, like, put their arm on, their hand on you or, you know, like, not like a, like a massive hug or anything, but more of a, like, hey, I'm here, and just kind of keeping your presence there helps them feel safe. Right. 
once they're back. Right. I learned not to, what did they say, don't touch her while she's activated. Right. So what does activated mean? Can you help me explain that? Like a disassociation. Okay. Sort of like you almost like, you know, <clears throat> step out of yourself and you go somewhere else. Like fight, flight, freeze. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard those terms before? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I figured you have. I just wanted to make sure. No, it's, I would have you explain it anyway because uh, I think of that with when people talk about cops and they say, get on the ground and the person froze. Yeah. Well, like, you don't have to have a lot of psychological training to know that if you point a gun at someone and scream, they're going to freeze. Right. So screaming for them to move, mm-hmm. to me, is very uneducated. Right. Yes, exactly. I'm not ripping on cops. I just no, think no, no. they need better training. Right, for sure. Sorry. So you were no, going to say something. Yes. Um, I'll get there again. Fight, flight, or freeze. So a lot of, with trauma, and people who have experienced trauma... It appears as though I'm not a researcher and I don't have facts, right? So I can't say that I know any of this for a fact. But it appears that we, they sort of lose the freeze response. Really? Um, or they lose the fight response. She one of the two. She wanted to run so badly. Either way. That's what she said. She mm-hmm. wanted to run. It was, it, it's sort of like we lose one of the actual ways, like, you know... Perceived real, actual, like, threat, like, um, let's say a, a tiger walked through here right now, right? That would be a perceived threat. So the natural response, would your body would automatically go, okay, well, the best is to freeze or the best is to run. But if you think of, like, a cycle, right, when we can't, um, have you ever come across or seen a video about polar bears and how they would tag them? And it actually displays the trauma response in our bodies. Have you ever seen that? No, but I've heard things about animals that they can shake it off. We were on, we were into some kind of uh, book called literally like Taming the Tiger. So I'll, yeah. I'll say what it's called. Uh-huh. I can't think of it, but it yep. was really helping validate a lot of what she felt. Mm-hmm. She was like, oh, God, I'm not a loser. This is Peter real. Levine. This, was, this mm-hmm. was, yeah, Peter Levine. Yeah. Amazing book. Yeah, right. But I be- it, made, it made me a believer that the hard work is worth it. For sure. So in that, it seems like we lose one of them, but that video is actually very insightful as to how, um, like, polar bears, if they weren't able to complete the trauma cycle, they would be vulnerable to their environment. So we, as humans, right, we, you know, if we can't fight, if we can't fight or we can't flee, mm-hmm. we get this thing called freeze, okay? Whereas, like, you know, if we, let's say we're driving on an icy road, and we slip or something, right? Like our, yeah, and our body tenses up. And let's say we even maybe got in an accident from it, right? And if some, if we, we didn't, let's say, have, uh, we get to work or wherever we're going and we say, oh my gosh, it was, you know, holy shit, I almost got in an accident today or whatever. If we can't complete the cycle to get that freeze out of our body, then it sticks with us. It's in our body. How do we complete it? Because she would have little dreams where she would be kicking her little feet, and I had read that something about running, uh-huh. like you just said, yep. but I can't articulate it like you right. can. Something about mm-hmm. running gets it out of your system. Uh-huh. Well, like, what's going on? If you complete the cycle, then you can get back to, it's almost like you get it out of your body. Okay. Absolutely. Right. So like, like in this video of the polar bear, they tag him, right? They sedate him and they tag him. And then, like, the, the sedation is starting to wear off, and the body will, it, this, this polar bear does this breathing pattern, right? And it sort of resets its system, and then it's able to get up. Yeah, like, it sort of depresses, like, it slows, oh, down, it slows down, and then it goes back to normal, and then the animal can finally, like, go, right? 
So with us, when we experience and we can't, you know, get out or we can't fight, we don't get to do that. If we get out or we fight, then we experience trauma, but we don't get stuck and freeze. Okay? So there's little T's and big T's, right? Have you ever heard those? What do they mean? Little traumas and big traumas. No. Mm-hmm. So little traumas can be like everyday, sort of like I was explaining the car accident thing, right? Like where it almost happened, but it didn't quite happen. Like our body immediately, you know, pushes out the adrenaline or whatever it is that we need to either survive, right? Like. Yeah. How many times are we encountered in our environment of needing to survive every day, right? So little T's, big T's, that sort of thing. I won't get too into that because we'll go down a a rabbit hole that we'll never come out of. So, um, (laughs) you know, trauma gets stuck in our body. That's why EMDR works, right? You're a believer? Mm Mm-hmm. So EMDR is one thing that works to kind of help us get that out of our body. Um, you know, yoga is a thing that can help. Um, they have um, trauma-releasing exercises that a person can do with their body that helps sort of get a lot of the deeper. There's different positions and things you can do that really, I found, have helped people. Somatic experiencing is another version. Yeah, we were doing that too. Yeah. Um, Peter Levine has really shared with the world a lot of good insight about trauma and treating its effects. Were people talking about it the way he did in that book before he came along, or is he a groundbreaker? I felt like he was a groundbreaker. Yeah? Yeah. I can tell you, Peter, if you're listening, doctor. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, I, yes. I hope that uh, anyone who's contributing to this field mm-hmm. gets into this podcast, and I'm hoping yeah. to interview people of that level at some time um, here in the University of Wisconsin <laughs> Student right. Union. Exactly. <laughs> Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!